listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Skylight, Skylight, a Skylight Books podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jeffrey. Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. We're open every day from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. and asking that all customers wear masks inside the store, regardless of vaccination status. We also offer online shopping and curbside pickup through our website, www.skylightbooks.com. You can check out our upcoming events on our Crowdcast page crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. It's my pleasure to be joined by Beth Gilstrap and Steph Post today to discuss Beth's new book, Deadheading and Other Stories. How are you two doing today? Hi. Hello, doing great. How about you? I'm doing okay. Um, Beth Gilstrap is the author of I Am Barbarella, and her work has been selected as longform.org's Fiction Pick of the Week and chosen by Dan Sean for inclusion in the Best Microfiction Anthology 2019. She holds an MFA from Chatham University. Her stories, essays, and hybrids have appeared in Ninth Letter, The Minnesota Review, Denver Quarterly, Gulfstream Lit, and Wigleaf, among others. She lives in Louisville, Kentucky, with a house full of critters. Steph Post is the author of the novels Miraculum, Lightwood, Walk in the Fire, Holding Smoke, and A Tree Born Crooked. She graduated from Davidson College as a recipient of the Patricia Cornwell Scholarship and holds a master's degree in graduate liberal studies from UNCW. Her work has most recently appeared in Garden and Gun, Saw Palm, Stephen King's, and Stephen King's Contemporary Classics. She has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize, a Risling Award, and was a semi-finalist for the Big News Prize. She lives in Florida. Beth and Steph, uh, well, Beth's gonna read for a little bit, and then Beth and Steph will discuss the book for uh, a little bit, and then we'll call it a day. But um, Beth, you got something to read for us? I do, yeah. I think I'm just going to read the first story in my book. Um, and like a lot of the stories, it is inspired by my maternal grandparents who um, helped raise me. I grew up with a single mom, so I spent a lot of time with them. And uh, I think you can see that throughout the book. Um, it's called Earth Eating as Suppression. Up the hill behind Papa's shed, Reese dug in a good bank pulling handfuls of slippery clay out onto the upturned lid of a garbage can. She squeezed it in her hands, leaving it crimped into mucky dinosaurs. It had rained for a solid week that February, and even at her age, she'd learned the best harvests came in winter. Winters in the Carolina Piedmont were like what folks up north call mud season, though we're almost never thawing out frozen. We stay misted and sinking in the ground from November through March. Nobody ever dreamed of a dirty little Christmas, which was almost always what we had. 
Our trees were trimmed a little more around the bottom after having sat on lots for any amount of time, dirt huddled in the needles, sometimes knee high. As soon as the carpets and upholstery got cleaned up, the dogs would take one sloppy lap around the property, tongues fly, and then come barreling in the doggy door and paint the den crusty red again. The whole time, smiling, jowly smiles the way only hound dogs could. Papa and Gammy couldn't stay mad for long. Those dogs were the only thing that made them laugh after a lifetime of scraping by and burying all 15 of their combined siblings. Both were the last of their families, save for their daughter, Verbena, and her girl, Reese. They didn't count Reese's daddy no more, not since he ran off with a blonde who wasn't half as pretty or tall as smart as Verbena. They couldn't make heads or, tail of it, heads or tails of it, so they chewed their lips and rubbed their chins and said yes every time they were asked to look after their little tomboy. Reese had slipped and landed on her knees some time ago, but was so engaged with digging, she'd barely noticed how filthy her new jeans were until the cold soaked in and spread up to her hips. Her fingertips had numbed and her nose prickled in the February air. Daylight waned and the floodlights clicked on, leaving a warm halo to aid her work. Gammy and Papa would holler for her to come in any minute, she wanted to get as much mud as she could before that happened. As her hands stiffened, she rolled a glob in her palms, gently massaging the tender flesh at the base of her thumbs. With one final squeeze, she dropped the last handful on top, wiped the rest on her pant leg because it didn't make no difference anymore, and scooped up the aluminum platter with both hands, as Gammy did any time she served fried chicken to a crowd. Reese's plate was equally special. Getting up the steps took a ballerina's grace and posture, but when Reese reached the door, she realized she wouldn't be able to jar the thing loose without a grown-up's help. The house had settled and the ground had shrunk and swollen a million times over between the extreme droughts of summer and the deluge of colder months. Reese thought a lot about what would happen to her body if she could shrink and swell on the same level of that good red dirt. Would she lizard? Would she water moccasin? Would she worm? She would hole up in a ground nest in summer and lie in wait for a fuzzed creature as soon as she had preened herself free of hair and demands. Papa must have heard her jingling around the door because about the time she had gotten frustrated enough to throw her mud plate, his haunting silhouette appeared behind the cafe curtains. He tapped on the glass, asking her if she wanted to come in. Maybe I want to get in of my own accord, Reese said. Suit yourself, he said, trying to hide the smile in his voice. But he stepped away. She changed her mind. Papa, she said, no longer fighting balance and full hands and swollen doors. I got something for you and Gammy. Well then, he said, pulling the door open with a jolt, I'll take payment upon entry. Reese walked through the door where a pot of collards spit and hissed in the pressure cooker and okra cooled on paper towels. Her stomach growled, thinking about the cornmeal crunch and the hint of char from the last one spooned out of the hot grease. On the other side of the kitchen, Gammy was down in the den working a puzzle on a TV tray while the dog snored next to her. The castle at Magic Kingdom. She had the spires and turrets, but the bottom had yet to be filled in. Remember when we met Goofy, Gammy asked? He had the best ears and smelled like ketchup, Reese said, placing her mud plate on top of the puzzle. What have we got here? Looks like someone's been up the hill harvesting mud. The good stuff, Reese said, that bit of sour you can't get nowhere but here. It's been a long time since I've had a good bit of mud. Folks don't eat it like they used to. 
Only ignorant people partake in such things, Papa said. Women in particular. Don't pay him no bind, baby. I didn't have time to make it into pies before supper. It gets dark so early now. Come here and sit on my lap and we'll make the patties together. They sat rolling the mud until it dried in their hands. Gammy told her how her mother salted and baked the clay in the oven and drizzled apple cider vinegar on top, breaking it with her fork while it was still warm. Some folks never understand the desire to let earth melt under the tongue, to let the thousands of microbes disseminate into the body, to suppress the unnameable pain growing in the belly, she said. Your mama sure doesn't, she said, raising a piece to Reese's lips and catching the crumbs. That's the end. Well, I'm gonna jump in. Um, this is Steph and I'm like, trying to contain myself right now because one of my favorite things in the entire world is uh listening to you read your own work i was rereading <laughs> you just have the best voice and i was rereading uh that story in other parts of deadhead this morning with my chickens and i can't read your work without hearing your voice in my head oh, that's awesome even though it's probably yeah it's probably been two <laughs> three years since i've um heard you read at an event, but I just, it just made my day to hear, because when you speak your words, they just come out. Um, <laughs> Thank do you, you. Do you mind if I jump in and ask you, a, go ahead and just ask you a question? Sure, please. Okay, um, I don't wanna be like interrogating you, but, <laughs> um, but I was so glad that you did this story, you read this story. Um, and I wanted to ask you because probably a lot of people that are listening to this podcast don't realize that earth eating, you know, um, actually eating mud, either baked or raw, is a real thing. Um, yeah. I, I was even asking my husband about it a couple hours ago, and he's from, you know, very deep South North Carolina, and he had no idea. He's never heard of it. And I've heard of it for a long, long time. And I was wondering if you could you know, for the listeners to sort of explain where that tradition comes from um, and why you chose to use that as sort of the, the metaphor, but also the framework for a story that's about pain. Um, well, the main thing for me is that it's a family story. Um, I don't think I realized it was a wider spread Thing until um, much, much later. Um, like there was a, a documentary that came out uh, probably right around the time I published my first book, like 2015, somewhere in there, um, about this practice. Um, and it, it tends to be, you know, a very rural, um, poor thing. Um, and there were stories, my grandma talked about how her mother used to eat it um, and it was always women um, so it's it's been associated with pregnancy um, from what i understand mm -hmm. um, and it's almost like a pica kind of thing um, so it's it's tradition and it's also rooted in in poverty um, you know people when they're hungry they'll they'll eat anything but it's it's not just that you know you grew up in the South too. We've got a whole lot of superstition, right? Mm. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's like an old school detox method, I think, from from what I understand. And and that was how my 
my great grandmother um, interpreted it. If she wasn't feeling well, if she had a stomach ache, um, if something fell off that she couldn't mm -hmm. explain, explain um, that was a, a practice. And my grandma would tell me about it. Um, and of course, I was a little tomboy and just always in the mud and up in the trees <laughs> and everything else. And she said that I reminded her a lot of her. Um, but based on like i did more research as i was writing that piece and based on that it sounds like um this is a practice that's been common in the american south since you know um before the colonies were here mm -hmm. so um an indigenous practice so i want to do more research on it um you know it's a very personal connection for me but i love the idea of of that sort of um, superstition element of it. And I put it first in the book because I think, you know, it, to me, it's a metaphor for the fact that, you know, this is who I am, whether I like it or not. Um, I think it serves as a metaphor for generational trauma um, mm -hmm. and the things that are handed down that, that you know we are blessings and curses um, so that's kind of my my personal connection to it but i also was in a room full of um other writers uh, about the time i was writing this piece and in the charlotte region which is where i was born and raised um it sounds like it was connected to a ringworm outbreak Huh. which which can cause this weird pica so i don't know i mean you know there's, there's all kind of stories about why and how you don't know what to believe well and what i love about it i mean it's it's a the emotions behind the story anyone can relate to um that has been through pain or trauma or family but at the same time just in reading the story just in listening to you talk for the last three minutes you've opened up a whole world for people um right. of of also being like that's the other like oh my gosh i would never do that but also being like oh well that sort of makes sense there's this weird regional thing where i'm from or my family has a story about doing this and so it's i i love how you can connect to readers while also giving them something completely new and different that stretches them in a way. Yeah, thank you. I try to. Um, I <laughs> I do think this was this little piece was published um, online a while back, and I do think a few people thought it was you know a cute little story about making mud pies. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, yes and no. <laughs> um, it's not quite the same thing. But, well, that, that's know. why I really wanted you to talk about it a little bit because I. I knew it instantly. I was like, earth eating, okay. Um, but as I was reading, I was like, I wonder if people think that it's like just a metaphor or yeah, the little girl's just making mud pies and grandma's humoring her. And I, I wanted right. you to, which you just did clarify, like, no, this is a very Southern, it is worldwide too, but you know, ritual practice tradition. Um, yeah, I mean, there's so much ritual in the South. I mean, <laughs> yes, it's the Bible Belt, but man, they got all kind of rituals that, that go in with it so well that sort of leads into where i wanted to go to next i mean i have like 
I, I, I know that um, the video won't be on the podcast, but for Beth looking at the video, now I have like all of these questions you can't see, but I mean, I have dog-eared your book. So we're gonna have to do several of these. Well, that um, makes me happy. <laughs> but the one uh, question I also wanted to jump into, um, because this is something that I know you talk about and you write about all the time anyway. And for me, you're not only one of my favorite short fiction writers, contemporary writers, or in general, I mean, nobody writes a short story like you. You also write about pain and trauma and uh, personal experience in a way that I've never read anyone do before. And so when I was, again, rereading your story this morning, I was thinking about um, like you personally as a writer and your philosophy as, as a writer or writing, where is the line between, you know, memoir and fiction and, and where does that line get blurred and how do you do such a good job of, of balancing the two? Loaded question there. <laughs> you were um, expecting easy, like. <laughs> no, uh, you know, I, I love messing with those lines um to me that's a really fun part of of my craft and i don't always know when i start writing something if i'm going to present it as as memoir or nonfiction or fiction um and i think a lot of times that comes in the shaping of it or it comes in a very um, intuitive spiritual way um, I just write and then I see <laughs> see where it goes, but I like to blur the lines and I think it has to do with intent. Um, you know, I have a lifetime of traumatic experiences. Um, most of the time when I talk to people in my daily life, uh, I'll say something and like, I recently wrote about, uh, in an essay about my father running over frogs on purpose. And a friend of mine read that essay and was like, holy crap, like what? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I never told you that. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just normal to me because it's my experience. So I don't, I don't always remember that, that other people don't have layers upon layers upon layers of trauma. Um, and I think part of it is is how just how I see the world, um, you know, because of all that trauma, I have chronic post-traumatic stress disorder. And, you know, there are studies that that um, show how it changes your brain, like mm -hmm. literally changes your brain and how you process information in the world. And I'm sort of just walking around in my own head all the time. I'm, um, and it's, it's how I see things, um, you know, for fiction, what I love about it is I have control over the outcome. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's, it's always been a coping mechanism for me, even when I was a child, um, writing was a coping mechanism that I learned very early. Um, you have no control about the chaos surrounding you, mm -hmm. but you can control the narrative um, when, when you're making the story. Um, and I think that's why fiction appeals to me more. But some things, 
need to be um, nonfiction. And, and I also know that memory is fallible. Um, mm -hmm. my, my point of view on something can be completely different than my sibling who experienced the same thing. Um, and of course, you know, my mother has completely different points of view about about everything. So, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder always. Oh, no, I love that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more on another <laughs> something because I'm like over here, like thinking about notes furiously because I want to go into this a little bit more. Um, but for the sake of time, there was one other thing I really wanted to ask you about. Um, because one day we are going to do a piece about this together somehow. <laughs> um, and it has to do with what we talked about years and years ago about uh, writing, you know, wild women, writing these female characters that um, you and I both do. And I think that's one of the reasons I just felt so drawn to your short fiction is that every one of your female characters, they are not necessarily the you know, badass in the short shorts with the machine gun, um, the way a lot of people think of, oh, that's the badass female character. Um, your, your female characters or, you know, female identifying characters, they are, they're vulnerable and complicated and they make bad choices and we love them. And it is very hard to write characters like that. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you is why do you think, I was gonna say, how hard is it to write those characters? And <laughs> I mean, we know that, um, but why do you think there are not as many female characters in fiction that really go for that, that reach? And, and, you know, why do you feel the need to do it? Um, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> the simplest terms I wanna go, the patriarchy, the heteronormative <laughs> patriarchy. Um, but I think, I think a lot of folks um, are maybe a little bit afraid um, to write such vulnerability because mm -hmm. they're afraid of that vulnerability in themselves. Um, Whereas when you've seen the world fall apart time and time again, it's kind of like, well, that's real. And um, that's, these are women that I grew up with. You know, my, my grandparents did have, you know, five and six siblings a piece. Um, and, you know, my, my grandmother's house was ground zero for the entire family. So, you know, and after she left the mill, my grandmother started doing hair in her living room as her oh, profession. Wow. So not only did I listen to all my great aunts and my grandmother, I listened to all her clients. So I've got like, wow, just, just so many stories over and over again. And, you know, I'd be in the room like on the floor playing but listening the whole time um and i saw the difference between what they said in a room full of other women 
Yes. Oh. And and what they showed the rest of the world, um, whether that was in church or or um, out in the neighborhood, or even when my grandpa or their husbands, my uncles were around, or even even um, my sibling, um, you know, conversations changed, and I noticed, and demeanor changed, and I noticed. Uh, so I always wanted to be like, no, tell me more about all this craziness. No, I, I just love that because that is, I think, one of the things that I love in your work and I haven't been able to put my finger on what it is because I think it is peeling back that layer and, and you do it without being pedantic, without being, you know, up on your high horse about it, you know, you really sort of flay your characters and readers get that. I don't think they even understand why. Um, but hearing that, that you, you know, you were able to see, and especially being young, without all those societal layers, you were able to see women as they, like truly who they were in a yeah. very vulnerable state. And that kind of makes sense to me why and how you're able to do what you do. Because um, lots and lots of people write, you know, quote unquote, strong female characters. Um, they don't necessarily get that vulnerability in there and that complicated nature that you do. Yeah. And, and so I'm just, you know, thankful that we have your fiction in the world <laughs> to well, sort of you. shed light on that, you know? I do think it's changing a little bit, um, like Nomadland. Oh, yeah. Was just devastating in the best way. Um, like, I get that grief. I get it. And, and that's, that's the kind of thing I go for. You know, I want to see real <laughs> and uh, I love that character. I think they did a fabulous job with, with her. Oh, that, that was brilliant. Um, but I have no idea where we're at for time. I mean, you and I are just... <laughs> Keep <laughs> it going. <laughs> no, I, no, if you have more questions, I, I think this is great. We're fine on oh, time. Oh, okay, because I mean, I could go for days. Like, Beth needs to come <laughs> on over, get on the front porch, and we'll drink some whiskey and hang out with my chickens. And, you know, one of these days... Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> that's going to happen. Um, Okay, so I do have one more kind of question that I wrote down that sort of pertains to all this. And you've covered a lot of this, so feel free to take it in a different direction um, okay. if you want to. Um, going back a little bit to the, the writing about yourself, but through fiction, um, one of the things when you were talking about that instantly made me think of, I, I took a memoir writing class um, at UNC Charlotte not sorry excuse me UNC Wilmington I went to undergrad in Charlotte um and so I wrote my you know 30 page memoir and it I mean it destroyed me I, I have one copy of it and I I think besides the people in that class no one has ever read it and I will never publish it how do you sort of put yourself out there like that because you know and people are I mean I grew up a lot like you and I, I tell sometimes these random stories about crazy things that happened to me 
people say, you know, oh, you should write about it. And I'm like, absolutely not. Because I just <laughs> can't break down that wall. And you do, and you have done it. And you're just this wrecking ball force to break down the walls that we put up. How, like, how, how do you get yourself there? Um, Another really well, easy question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, well, I never intended to write nonfiction. Um, and I have to give some credit here to uh, my MFA program, which um, at Chatham, they're very big on, you know, writing across genres. And as part of that, I had to take um, one of the courses I had to take was nature writing. Uh, Rachel Carson was oh, a, big wow. part, a, a big part of that university and um, influenced the, the design of the program a lot. So I had to take nature writing and I it sort of cracked things open. Um, and then I took food writing with Sherry Flick, who is oh, a, wow. <laughs> a, fa a fabulous flash fiction writer and mentor. Um, and that, I mean, there's no way to write about food without memory um, yeah. and without, without my grandparents and my mom. Um, so uh, I think that was, you know, being a, a little bit forced to <laughs> help. Um, but even after school, I, I had no intention um, and it just started happening. Um, and I think part of that coincides with, I was lucky enough to um, have two very, very good therapists. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks to um, my husband's job, I had good health insurance and um, I had two very good therapists along the way. And like I said, it, it's a coping mechanism. It's a way to get some distance from it. Um, so once I've written a piece, I feel better, but the process is horrible. Yeah. It's just horrible. <laughs> I mean, it talk about triggering. I mean, you it's it's almost like um the therapy, I'm blanking on the name of it, where they they want you to walk right into that traumatic memory. And that's exactly what it is. Oh yeah. Um and it, it does give you some distance. And as far as being vulnerable about it, um you know, I don't think about people reading it when I'm doing it. And That's then, good. That's smart. And and the same thing goes for when I'm sending it out. It's not until it gets picked up that I'm like, oh, crap, what have I done? <laughs> Why did I do this? But um, I, I think it also, the, the nonfiction that I write tends to be a little more lyrical. Um, mm -hmm. So I, le I lean into that when I'm writing nonfiction um, and it feels a little safer that way, I guess, <laughs> but I don't well, know. <laughs> no, I then I think that would give it even more distance. It's, you know, that, and that way you can be the peeling back the layers, but then also being able to put your craft into it. And then yes, to use like a, a baking metaphor, <laughs> you know, that you put everything yeah. together and it comes out amazing. Um, are you ever going to write a cookbook? It's just a little bit random, but if you know Beth and you will after reading her work, she's an, 
brilliant cook. And I just really want you to write a cookbook and, and with all your stories. And would you please um, do that? Yes, I would. I really want to do that. Um, I think the hardest part about that will be doing the testing and quantifying because <laughs> you know the cooking side of things is so much muscle memory at this point mm -hmm. um because like i've been cooking since i had to stand on a chair um to do it and you know it's there are i've said this to most of my friends there are two times when my brain turns off enough for me to relax and the first is out in the garden. The second is in the kitchen. Like the volume of all that anxiety, all that internal chatter, it just goes way down. Um, so to me, it's super peaceful. And it, it's a nice change from the writing where you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, demons. Let's <laughs> hang out. That feels like a great note to end on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time. Today's guests were Beth Gilstrap and Steph Post, and they were discussing Beth's new book, Deadheading and Other Stories. You can order a copy of that book or any of the others mentioned on today's podcast at skylightbooks.com or swing by and pick them up in the store. Thanks for listening, and thanks again, Beth and Steph. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. <laughs>